Welcome to the Week Ahead in Russia, RFURL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman. So I'm just going to uh, introduce Mark once again, uh, uh, Mark Galliotti, analyst of Russian politics and honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin and The Weaponization of Everything. Uh, Mark is, has been joining us about once a month, uh, and I thank you very much for joining me today, Mark. That's all right. So, I mean, again, maintaining the same ritual, I'll complain about Twitter spaces, but never mind. That's not <laughs> no, what everyone tuned well, in for. I, I'm very grateful that you, um, you know, that you, that you agree to do it despite, despite, the, uh, despite the platform. Um, uh, so it's great to have you. And I guess uh, first we can address Putin's remarks uh, on July 7th. Essentially, he, he dared the West to try his hardest to defeat Russia. Um, and he went on to say, essentially, that Russia has not yet begun its assault on Ukraine in earnest. Uh, it was reminiscent of the famous phrase, I have not yet begun to fight. Uh, and also kind of a less formal translation of his words might be, you ain't seen nothing yet. So this is really kind of trolling by Putin. Um, you know, whose whose war is is killing thousands of people, um, uh, including his own soldiers. On a very basic level, the statement is absurd. As as I said, um, you know, according to Western intelligence estimates and Ukrainian ones, uh, Russia has, I think, not given a casualty figure for its uh, forces since March, when it said there was thirteen hundred something uh, Russian soldiers killed. But um, the estimates from Western intelligence are more than 15,000, uh, which would make it about the same or more than the number of Soviet soldiers killed in the USSR's nearly de decade-long war in Afghanistan. And Putin is sort of saying this has all been just a warm-up. Obviously, uh, like many of the things Putin says, one of the goals here is to frighten Kiev and the West. But um, is there anything more to it than that, or, or was it just kind of a throwaway uh, piece of rhetoric? Mark, what's your what's your reading of the remarks that Putin made last week? Well, there is a degree to which, yes, it is a, th a, throw, a throwaway line. And in some ways, it's, uh, I think, it's a little bit like his nuclear rhetoric as well. That, bizarrely, it is in some ways um, a positive sign on the principle that if he's having to threaten things, it's because he can't actually do things. So, I mean, I, I think we, we should accept the degree to which rhetoric is sometimes a substitute for action rather than anything else. But that said, I think there, there is a certain purpose to it. First of all, he, he is, I think, signaling to the Russian public that this is going to be a long and hard war, even if we can't call it a war yet. Um, that uh, having sort of started with this very kind of triumphalist rhetoric about how quick and easy it's going to be, now they're having to adopt a whole variety of other measures. So it, it is about expectation management. And in some ways, this is the safest and best time to be doing it. As we go into the summer and people are sort of, you know, enjoying the, the nice weather and everything else, you are really preparing people for autumn and winter where not only the weather, but also actually the economic and political climate is likely to be that much more inclement. So now is the time to start preparing the Russian public for the idea they're in for the long haul. It's also, I would suggest, signaling to the West, 
more or less saying, look, this is a battle of wills. And we reckon we can outlast you. I mean, of course, the reason why Putin thinks he can outlast the West is because he has to care much, much less about public opinion and politics and, and all this kind of pesky democracy stuff. Um, but nonetheless, I think that that's also the signaling. Don't think you won. It's interesting because we had uh, at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum some very bullish language from Putin about how the West's economic blitzkrieg, as he put it, has failed to bring Russia to its knees and so forth. Now, this this is essentially economically illiterate in that uh, economic warfare, economic sanctions are not going to be a quick, short, sharp shock. They're a slow grinding process of systemic attrition. But still, I mean, I think it, it, it's it's all about trying to present the idea that, look, you shouldn't even try and get into this contest with us, West. We know we can outlast you, so why don't you start backing away now? And there's one final point I, I, I think I'd want to make, though, is because we are seeing the first signs of change on the ground. Um, there's been a certain kind of ad hoc, so-called soft military mobilization as they try and attract more contract recruits. The mercenary companies are hiring. We're even getting talk that they're actually going and hiring people from prisons and offering amnesty in return for, for, for combat. We're also seeing the moves towards economic mobilization. There's currently this, this package of laws going through, or amendments rather, going through the Duma, which would in effect mean that the same economic mobilization instruments, which one could see in a time of all-out war, can also be invoked during one of these quote-unquote special military operations. You know, compulsory overtime for workers in, in, in crucial factories, companies not allowed to refuse government contracts, opening up mobilization stocks, that kind of thing. So, you know, bit by bit, actually, Russia is moving onto a proper wartime footing. It's still all a bit half measures, ad hoc, because Putin's not willing to actually take the political risk and really sort of level with his own people about what's, what's going on. But with this kind of rhetoric, he is at least inching closer towards it, which is, I think, as far as he's willing to do at this moment. Okay, so very interesting. You you, you say uh, that you know there's movement on the ground in terms of uh, Russia, kind of preparing. You know, it was unprepared, I guess, uh, from the start, but now preparing for the kind of war that um, that it sees. That uh, I guess Putin now sees he has to fight. I was listening to one of one of your own podcasts um, this morning, and it was you were mentioning how. Uh, you know, really, Putin had misjudged at the start. At the start of the war, he he really, you know, there was talk. When did he decide um, to invade? Was it something where he decided? And and you made the point that I think, kind of, it's not that he uh, was thinking about it and then decided to take the risk. I think you argued there was more like he he didn't think it was a risk. He 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 believed. Um, that Russia would essentially take over Ukraine or, or most of Ukraine, um, you know, very quickly uh, within days, and that that that, that plan would work. Um, so, so obviously, um, he's had to adjust adjust to that, and um, you know, there. I guess you're saying there's signs that um, 
that he's doing so in a more, you know, in a more realistic way, perhaps than before. But kicking and screaming, I think this is a thing, but this is what, what's really striking. And it's, a, it's very classic Putin. He does not like to take bold decisions. And that applies just as much to domestic policy as international. And in this case, you know, when he has no good options, when it's all just simply a question of which of the bad answers do you decide to go for, he still hedges and avoids actually you know, making a real commitment one way or the other. So, you know, we've got a bit of soft mobilization, but we don't have the full scale mobilization, which would obviously require admitting that this was a war and with all the political consequences thereof. Likewise, economic mobilization. I mean, what this package of measures will do is that it allows the state to do various things, but it doesn't require. And it's still a question of when and how will Putin, or will he just simply, or presumably he will subcontract this to Prime Minister Mishustin, but actually invoke these measures. So you know, it, it, it's really quite striking that, that this is still a war being fought, however horrifically, but in some ways I could almost put it on the cheap. Putin's not willing to commit himself. And yet at the same time, we have the Ukrainians talking about having this million-man army in the making. Now, a lot of that is frankly rhetoric. They do not have, even at their full mobilization stretch, a million men and indeed women to throw into the breach, because that includes you know, huge amounts of rear area forces, police, border guards, and so forth. But still, at a time when clearly Ukraine is throwing its full national effort into what is, after all, a genuinely existential struggle there, Right. For what I would suggest is a politically existential struggle for Putin, he's still hoping that somehow, magically, he can do it without actually having to make a full-scale commitment to it. Right, and I, I guess maybe the way he's saying, you mentioned, uh, okay, these laws will allow for these measures, but not, uh, not sort of enforce them or require them. That sounds a little bit like maybe what he was doing with COVID, uh, you know, leaving it up to governors in that case to to make choices uh, to some degree. And, and just also, like the COVID measures, it won't really work on that basis. I mean, the, right. the Russian defense industrial complex is not designed for individual governors to make those kind of decisions. And then you, you also mentioned, um, I mean, just the idea of Putin being reluctant to, to kind of uh, take steps that, that he, he may realize he should or, or given his goals, he should take. I'm not saying he should at all. But um, you do have, I think, increasing calls uh, by people like um, Igor Girkin and, you know, these, these nationalists who, you know, really rabid kind of anti-Ukrainians and such who are saying, well, you know, why aren't we doing more? So I guess he's under pressure from that, from that side. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to overstate that degree of pressure. I mean, I think it's a really important uh, development, this nationalist critique of Putin, people who didn't have a problem with the invasion of Ukraine, but have a problem with it being done so amateurishly, so badly, with such evidence of corruption and incompetence. But I don't think in a way, again, it's, it, that these are necessarily bringing pressure to bear yet on Putin himself, because I'm not quite sure how much Putin knows about what's going on. We have to remember that this is a man behind a whole series of information filters of people whose job it is to, frankly, make the boss feel comfortable. But on the other hand, it really is a, thing, is a trend within the security forces. 
and, and I guess that may be one of the one of the factors in his kind of bullishness is still even you know even given his uh, the the lack of uh, you know the, the mistakes made at the beginning um, you know he he may still be getting not quite uh, uh, clear information about wh- about what's happening on the ground um, so let's uh, just uh, I think a quite related question is is the second the second issue I wanted to uh, to talk about the article um, one of your recent articles this was published. Um, on July 2nd in the Sunday Times, um, and the headline was, Is the West Really Prepared to Pay the Price of Defeating Putin? Um, I'd say this this is very much related to Putin's remarks uh, last week, uh, not just because uh, it's about the war, but because Putin really set out the war as a confrontation with the West, and in particular, uh, the United States. Uh, one, of the, one of the things you address in the article is the issue of Western unity. And you note that while there's a lot of talk in the West um, about seeing this through, supporting Ukraine uh, for as long as it takes to achieve victory, uh, but correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you also say that there are quite different ideas in the West about what might count as victory, uh, and in fact, quite a range of views within NATO uh, about what kind of outcome would be a satisfactory um, and I'm going to quote from your article. You wrote that quote. There are hawkish nations. Uh, this is within NATO. There are hawkish nations that feel that it is not just about recovering every square inch of Ukrainian territory, including Crimea, but also wounding Russia so badly that it cannot pose a threat to any of its neighbors in the future. Often the implication is that this also means regime change, unquote. And then there are dovish countries, or more dovish countries that you write, quote, are primarily anxious to secure peace in Ukraine. Many would accept a withdrawal of Russian forces to their pre-invasion lines, uh, effectively conceding Crimea and the pseudo-states, unquote, uh, in the Donbass. That, that we're talking about the territory uh, controlled by Russia or the separatists that it supports, um, before February 24th, when, when Putin launched the large-scale invasion. So I guess one question I'd ask is, what are the chances of the gap uh, between these views narrowing or disappearing? And if they don't converge, if, if they remain essentially split, what might that mean uh, for the course of the war and its outcome? Uh, now, I've been, I've been jabbering on, so I'll stop at that question, but, but feel free to expand on some of the other points uh, you make in the article, if you wish. I, I think it really raised some key issues. Mark? Well, I mean, in some ways, the honest answer is the gap over what victory constitutes is not going to be closed until we start to talk about it seriously. I mean, as well as talking about hawks and doves, I also talked about a third category, the ostriches who in some ways are just keeping their heads stuck firmly in the ground, doing the least they can and anyway, going for the line of least resistance. And in some ways, most of the West is on this point behaving like an ostrich. Because I think this, this question of what does victory constitute is going to prove crucial. And we are putting off the discussions at our peril. There is this mantra that we will let the Ukrainians to dis- decide when the war is over. Now, I can understand why that is being said for for reasons political and practical, but it's not actually 
true. It's a very disingenuous com comment. And frankly, when one talks to people inside a variety of different NATO governments, they will all in their own ways acknowledge this. That yes, you know, obviously one wants to, you know, we want to support the Ukrainians and support the Ukrainians to driving the Russians to the point where there can be some kind of a peace, whether that literally means driving every Russian out of Ukrainian soil or just causing enough harm to the Russians that they actually are willing to make a reasonable deal. But there's no point in pretending that there are not Western interests at stake too, and that the West will not consider it. So I think that you know we we are putting off this like so many of the tough decisions, precisely because it is a tough conversation, and we're desperate to maintain unity. And if unity means papering over the cracks, so be it. The issue is that whereas for now, in some ways, it doesn't truly matter that much. In due course, it will. You can have all kinds of different uh, prospects. I mean, for example, if, let's say, Ukraine decides that, you know, it's, it's the, the, the military operations are just proving too costly in terms of lives and such like, and that something happens that they decide, no, we, we're going to reach a, an ugly deal, an ugly piece that we don't, it's not really what we like, but it's what we feel we have to acknowledge which perhaps gives Russia chunks of the Donbass, maybe the land corridor to Crimea, whatever. I mean, and I'm not saying this is at all likely. I'm just saying that we have to consider the whole fan of possibilities. Under those circumstances, would the countries that have much more maximalist goals actually say to the Ukrainians, no, we, don't, we want you to keep fighting because we don't think the Russians have been bled enough? Because Putin will expect, I think this is otherwise, why bother having a peace deal? Putin will expect some kind of sanctions relief as a part of it. And that is not something that Zelensky can offer. He is not in charge of the sanctions. He can decide what the Ukrainians do. He cannot decide what the West does. So at that point, Zelensky will have to go and bring the West in and say, look, we have a deal that we're willing to strike, but this will require you to lift the following sanctions. Not all of them by any means, but, but some of them. And that's the point when the West will actually have to make a decision. And if it's not united, then we, we, we might find, find pressure there. On the other end of the sort of extreme, I mean, what happens if, for example, Ukraine manages to you know, push back the Russians uh, across the Donbass, break the land corridor, and is a point when it's about to actually try and launch an offensive into Crimea? Now, Crimea, absolutely, internationally speaking, is Ukrainian soil. Russia, though, regards it as Russian soil. And although I'm not saying that we need to accept that, we need to accept that that would, from the Russians' point of view, be a serious escalation. And we do know that there are Western countries who are very alarmed by that potential uh, outcome and think it would lead to a very, very serious situation, might even push the Russians into the kind of apocalyptic scenarios we've been talking about, by like using tactical nuclear weapons or, or the like. Now, I'm not trying to give an answer to what we should do in these various circumstances. I'm just saying that we have to acknowledge that these are going to be issues. And it's worth us thinking and talking now rather than trying to cobble together some kind of a deal at the last moment. Because, I mean, the last point I, I would want to make is it fits a wider pattern in the West of, in effect, not actually being honest with our own electorates about what's going on. I mean, like it or not, we are in a war with Russia.
It's a very 21st century war. It's a war fought with economic measures, political measures, legal measures, even cultural measures. But it is a war nonetheless. We've chosen this particular kind of conflict, one that isn't going to see our boys directly fighting and dying in trenches, but we can't possibly pretend that it's not going to have serious costs. You do not pick a war with Russia and not expect it to be costly. And again, this kind of this links back to, to, to Putin's uh, sort of bravado. He is betting on the fact that we will not have the political will and focus to, to sustain this effort. And my concern is that one of the reasons why he might be thinking that is precisely that we have not or rather our national leaders, have not in the main been honest and straightforward with the population about what the costs will be. What the costs will be, how it's going to be a hard winter. There's no way of getting around it. There's going to be all kinds of long-term implications. Russia, the economy in Russia, will be seriously scarred, which will take years to heal, even after sanctions are eventually lifted, which probably, well, all sanctions will probably not be lifted so long as Putin is in the Kremlin. But okay, we're not going to have anything like that, but we will have scarring that will take time. So I think it's, it's a question of we, we've relied too long on so-called strategic ambiguity. And I think sometimes instead of being ambiguous, which actually tends to mean that the Russians think we're bluffing and our own populations think that things aren't as serious as they are, we should just actually have some of those hard conversations and have them publicly. Uh, it's fascinating. I, I, I'm going to try to play maybe the devil's advocate. Um, I don't think I understand these processes uh, as well as you, but what, I guess I'd ask a follow-up question. Um, what if, um, you know, having that, I guess, having that discussion now um, exposes too many, too many fault lines or too many cracks, you know, sort of in the West, um, is it possibly better to, you know, to to keep pushing with 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 a more of it more of a unified, you know, front, um, and then deal with the details when things become more clear? The trouble with that is, I mean, and that's a perfectly valid um, perspective. But the thing is that, first of all, we can't actually pretend that it's truly unified. I mean, we know there are fault lines. We know there is a difference between the positions taken by Poland and Hungary, Lithuania and Italy. And in those circumstances, unfortunately, the Russians have a tendency to grasp at straws. They tend to have, much, you know, it, 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 it's interesting that either they think that everything is being choreographed by Washington and that Europe is just, in effect, the United States' Warsaw Pact, or conversely, they're so convinced that, that everything is, is kind of fractious and, and, and bound to collapse. For a leader like Putin, who frankly is looking for excuses as to why the situation's be better than he thinks, than he fears, then I think you know, he will actually assume that our unity is less than it really is. So that's the first point I, I would make in response to that. But the, the, the second point is, is more general. Look... If we're honest about it, I mean, take sanctions. On one level, it doesn't matter too much what any one individual European country does, so long as the United States is still fiercely and firmly committed to prosecuting this economic war, because there is the extraordinary tool of uh, secondary sanctions, 
which essentially mean that you, you yourself become vulnerable if you breach the sanctions that the United States has put on a country like, like Russia. So, you know, this, this issue of unity, the very reason why we have such a problem with unity, to a degree within NATO, vastly more so within the European Union, is precisely that, that, that we put so much of a premium on the appearance of it without actually dealing with the essence of it. And that is why countries which are backsliders can get away with it, because they know that, in a way, their bluff is not going to be called. All right, well, definitely, uh, thanks, for, thanks for answering my question. Um, uh, we're getting a little short on time, um, but let's take a few questions uh, from, from listeners, uh, if, there, if there are any. Um, went through the ways of asking. So um, you can, if you have a question, you can request uh, a speaker privilege or there are other ways to ask. So I'll just give it a few more moments. Okay, um, I don't, not seeing any questions, uh, any hands raised, uh, so I, Okay, go. Okay, Richard, go ahead. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, what, it, what does the end of the Russia conflict in Ukraine look like? Uh, is, is there any hope that this is going to be over in some kind of way that it just inflicts less damage on Ukraine and on the world than is happening now? That's a really good question, um, and like all good questions, it, it leads to hard answers. I mean, look, I my suspicion is that if I was going to take a very Olympian view, I mean, ultimately, that I think Russia will be driven from or abandon the Donbass, but probably keep Crimea. The thing is, though, that you, you, you talk about, you know, whether this can be resolved without the kind of current sort of horror... I don't think so. I mean, I think at the moment we're in a situation in which, from Putin's point of view, he regards this war as both bearable, but also still potentially winnable. Now, I don't necessarily agree with him, but the trouble is he doesn't ask for my opinion. Um, at present, because Putin has to, in effect, justify the massive expenditure of resources and lives what we're actually seeing is the Russian demands are getting greater, not, not lesser. I mean, at the beginning of the war, there was a sort of a potential deal on the table, which was essentially to, if the Ukrainians were willing to recognize the so-called People's Republics and Russia's annexation of Crimea, and also commit themselves to neutrality, 
then the Russians were willing to, to let it go at that. Now, I'm not advocating that, they should, that the Ukrainians should have accepted that deal, by the way, but anyway, they didn't. Now we're in a much more sort of a maximalist situation, and it's clear that what the Russians are looking for is the whole of the Donbass region, plus the land corridor, plus Crimea, which clearly the Ukrainians cannot possibly and should not possibly grant. I mean, even if Zelensky were minded to, I suspect that politically he wouldn't be able to, to, to give that much Ukrainian soil away. So I think at the moment, the two sides are just too far apart. There is no kind of common ground or basis for negotiations, which means that it's going to be driven by the battlefield. It's going to be driven by who, who takes more losses than, than they feel that they can bear or that they are willing to bear. And that's not going to be a quick process. I mean, that's going to be this you know, reported million-strong Ukrainian army against the, the forces that are in a much larger Russian Federation can, can mobilize. So, unfortunately, and I so, so wish I had a, a more optimistic and upbeat uh, answer to give, I think that we're stuck with this certainly into the new year. And honestly, a real resolution that actually resolves everything, including the sanctions, as I said before, I don't think that is possible until Putin goes. So I think we'll, we'll see a kind of a, a battlefield resolution at some point, but which will leave Russia and the West at loggerheads with a certain amount of sanctions still in place, really like the kind of the height of the Cold War. And only later, only with a change in leadership in, in, in Moscow, do we have the chance for a proper resolution? All right, thanks very much for that for that uh, excellent answer, Mark. Um, uh, any any other questions uh, emerging towards the end? Just give it a few more moments again, in case anyone has any. Yes. yes, can. Oh, right, yes. Um, I'm just following this conservative leadership, and some of the statements by Liz Truss have been quite extreme on the Ukraine war. Do you think if she became prime minister, there might be a danger of Britain going rogue and acting things out of NATO and, and all this phrase coalition of the willing and, and, and it possibly spiraling out of control in Ukraine, led by Britain? Ah, uh, yes, Liz, Liz Truss and her, her rhetoric. Um, I'm, I think, again, we have to acknowledge the degree to which um, there is a kind of a, a political desire to cosplay Margaret Thatcher, which shouldn't necessarily be assumed to be really that uh, significant as a kind of policy option. Um, I mean, if one looks at, at the current field, frankly, I don't see anyone who would not be continuing the same current policy towards Ukraine both in terms of the, you know, the level of support for Ukraine, but also in terms of the commitment to doing it within the context of an alliance and some kind of sort of agreed and coherent strategy. So I'm not really worried about that. For me, I think the one significant point I would make about the current uh, leadership issues in, in, in the UK is that I mean, obviously, Boris Johnson, for for reasons of his own, decided to, to be very sort of forceful on, on the whole Ukraine issue. However, given that my big concern is not about the, 
the rhetoric and the bullishness at the front end. It's about the fact that after a certain period of time, even even populations that are broadly very, very supportive of Ukraine's cause are going to get not, as it were, directly annoyed with the amount of money being spent on Ukraine, both in terms of military assistance and you know, economic, the crucial economic assistance. But they are going to start getting peeved about the fact that money is not being spent on public services, on the other issues to do with you know, actually keep keeping their own country going. So I think in the UK, as in other countries, the key thing I think will be having you know a leadership that is that is willing to manage the economy in a stable way and communicate the costs and the reasons for those costs to, to the population. Some of the Tory um, leadership candidates, I think, would do a better job of that than others. But broadly speaking, I think policy is going to stay as is. Okay, thanks uh, for for that, uh, Mark. And I'll just, I think we'd have time for, for one more question, if, the, if there is one. Uh, so just to give it a few moments again. Uh, if not, um, we can wrap it up here. Um, it's, uh, you know, M Mark, I really appreciate your, your insights and your answers to the, to the uh, listeners' questions. Thanks very much for joining me. It's a pleasure. All right, once again, I've been speaking to Mark Galliotti, analyst of Russian politics and honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin and The Weaponization of Everything. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. Uh, as I mentioned at the start, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe uh, on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, I'll be back next Monday for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia. And please keep an eye out on Friday for my newsletter, The Week in Russia. Thanks for listening.